Morning, everybody. This is a wonderful opportunity for me to relive the past today because when I started preaching, I often uh, went to village church congregations with about eight people uh, in them. And uh, often I would take my uh, then fiance and my mother and my grandmother, anyone else I could uh, get. And sometimes we would double the congregation, they were so small. And so it's always uh, nice to come to a small congregation. And we used to think about the angels and all the other celestial beings that were joining in the worship. But now in this modern day, we know there's a congregation out there. And not just in uh, the Croydon area, but around the world, all kinds of people log into our services. And therefore, there's a real sense of uh, communion around the world. We're in Romans 12 today and I'm so glad and excited that you've given me yet another opportunity to come and muse through this wonderful book and uh, I was due to do Romans 13 next week but because of the changes uh, in the program I got put back a week and therefore this got put back a week and therefore I'm in Romans 12 and this is a critical turning point in the letter and I'm going to focus on the first verse but uh, I'll give you some kind of thoughts about the whole chapter and the context in the whole book in a moment. This is also uh, Remembrance Sunday and Remembrance Week, as it were. And my father, when he was just 19 years of age, went with another young man, also 19, uh, and they signed up together to serve in the Royal Navy during World War II. My father went through the whole war uh, serving on a destroyer in the, in the convoys in the north and he uh, survived without any problem. His friend, Kenneth King, was commissioned to HMS Courageous and on the 17th of September 1939, a U-39 uh, torpedoed and the, the ship was sank with the loss of 519 amongst them Kenneth, Kenneth King. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for his nation, one of the first casualties, one of the first major losses of the Second World War. And I'm always keen to remember the sacrifice that he made and the sacrifice my father made, although he was a survivor, and to pay tribute to those who have gone before because I'm not sure whether or not we as a nation have really understood what they were fighting for, and whether the freedom that they were fighting for has been properly used by us. But we have a responsibility not just to remember and honour them, but to consider in the light of what they did for us, how we ought to live. And it strikes me that this is exactly the place where Paul has arrived in Romans chapter 12, that he has considered in the first uh, 11 chapters the glories of the gospel of Christ. And we'll have to review some of that uh, in a moment. But he's got to this point where he's now reflecting, and uh, I just want to read the first few verses, one to three, or one to two really. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Father, we do pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouth may be acceptable in your sight, and that we may understand, think, and live well as a result of the great sacrifice our Lord Jesus Christ made for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, when we think about the freedom that we have in the gospel, Paul is telling us here, or he's appealing to us here. It's a great thing that this morning I am starting with an appeal. I'm appealing to you in the light of everything that you've heard this far in the book of Romans. Offer yourselves, consecrate yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is the, the call, this is the consequence of the gospel. And Paul is giving this appeal, it's a general appeal in, verse, in chapter 12, for all those who have come to faith. It's not simply that Christ has died for us and given us his life as a sacrifice. It's that now he is calling us to sacrifice ourselves, a living sacrifice. Someone said, well, how would you define consecration? He said, take a blank piece of paper and at the bottom of it sign your name and then hand it to God to write what he wants on the rest of it. All that we are, all that we have, all our ambitions and our dreams, everything is surrendered to God. And Paul says, present your body, your body as a living sacrifice, your body because your body contains everything that you are and everything you have. If you give your body, you give everything. And that is the appeal today that Paul is giving us. And in this chapter, he's saying that Christ died for us, therefore we must lay down our lives for him. And what that looks like is that we renew our minds, we think like God thinks, and we renew our hearts. We do the stuff of the heart, the emotions, the conscience, the will, everything in correspondence with God. Simply, Christ died for us, therefore we love God with our minds and our hearts. Sounds like an Old Testament command, doesn't it? And the Old and the New Testament hang together in this, that the centrality of our life is to be God. God our creator, God our redeemer. Everything he's done is the foundation for our lives. We could summarize up in one verse, or in one word from this verse, therefore... And when you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to know what it's there for. And therefore, Paul is not just saying, I think you should do this and I think you should do that. No, he's got this sequence of argument. He's been telling us right from the beginning, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Greek. And then in the first uh, Uh, from chapter 1 verse 18 through to the end of chapter 3 he's diagnosing the great problems that we have as humanity and those two problems summarized are sin and the wrath of God we have sinned all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and therefore, in Romans 1.18, Paul says, the wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven against the sin and the unrighteousness and godliness of men. 
And therefore, that is the problem of the world. God so loved the world, yes, but he also will judge the world in righteousness. And he doesn't so love it that he will simply overlook our sin. That's our great problem. Coronavirus is not our great problem. It's just a passing phase of the life in which we live. Wars, rumours of wars are not our great problem. The economy, our health is not our great problem. Our problem is that we are out of sorts with heaven's holy God and that we stand in a place of judgment. But Paul goes on, thankfully, and tells us at the right time God sent his son into the world and handed him over as a sacrifice of atonement. And that through faith in Jesus, through faith in his blood, we can be forgiven. And therefore, one of the other therefores in this book, we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. The war is over. And we are not prisoners of war who are just passive or even resistant we are those now who are called to offer up our lives Jesus says if any man wants to follow me let him take up his cross and come after him after me and there's no other way to live the Christian life the whole of the Christian life as it were is built on the foundation of everything that Paul has been spelling out when we get to Romans 8 nothing can separate us from the love of God No condemnation. Those great positions come from what Jesus Christ has achieved at the cross. And it's not simply a gateway. This reshapes our whole life. It's not something we just come in and that's it. Now we're Christians and we forget everything that's gone on before us. Our lives will be forever shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. And therefore in our preaching, in our worship, in our life, Everything we are, everything we have is a response. It's a response. It's a therefore now. This is how I will think. This is how I will live. And I want to just pick up a few things from the structure of Romans chapter 12 because after uh, this appeal in verse 1 to to, uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual worship or your rational worship, your reasonable worship. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. The renewal of your mind in many ways is repentance. It's a change of mind. It's aligning your thoughts with God's thoughts. And we need that continually. It's not something you just do. Is something that you are constantly doing, a life of repentance, a life of bringing your thoughts into line with God's thoughts. When I was a boy, I used to visit my grandmother, and she lived in a little village just outside of Bristol. And just next to where she uh, uh, lived, there was a gate into a, into a field, a farm. And you could always see where the tractor had gone in, because again and again, the tractor's ruts were the pathway that the tractor's followed and in many ways our minds are like that we get into ways of thinking modes of thinking they're born out of our experiences but we go down those familiar ways and when we become Christians God says you have to find a new way of thinking 
Don't be conformed anyway, any longer to the, to the pattern of this world. Don't go down those tractor ruts. You need to form new tractor ruts. And you do that by the renewal of your mind, by taking truth from Scripture on a daily basis, reading it, thinking about it, meditating on it, applying it, memorizing it, and making it the foundation of your life. C.H. Spurgeon once said about John Bunyan that his blood was bibline. He said, prick him anywhere and what will come out is scripture. And if you ever read the Pilgrim's Progress or the Holy War, you'll find that almost every phrase is shaped by scripture. We need to be a people who are renewed in our minds, not simply by going to courses and doing these kind of uh, mind change uh, practices, but by in taking scripture, reflecting on scripture. And one of the other points I want to bring out about this word therefore is that Paul is a very logical thinker. And if we follow his train of thought, we get an example about exactly how his mind had been changed from the self-righteous Pharisee to the humble apostle. And we're able to follow in the train of this man's mind and Use this as an example and a springboard for ourselves. God expects us to love him with all our minds. And that means that we are to spend quality time thinking. Christians are not simply to be people who do stuff, but they're to think about what they do. What we do and how we live is not just because we've been told or commanded, but because we've reflected deeply on the gospel and how it has Therefore, implications for our lives. You notice in verse 3 that Paul then goes on to say, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now there's a general principle again here. If you think of yourself too highly, you haven't really understood the gospel. Because the diagnosis Paul gives us is that we are sinners who are sold into slavery. And that we have abandoned God. I used to say that before I I, I became a Christian, I was addicted to sin and allergic to God. I was alienated from him. I was a rebel. There was a war and I was an aggressor in that war. And I wasn't a good guy that was a natural recruit in the army of the kingdom of heaven. I was a rebel. I was an outcast. And I should not think of myself too highly. I shouldn't forget from where I have come. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I remember reading a biography of an American pastor back in the 70s who said his church didn't like this hymn and so they changed it. They took the word wretch out. That's negative. We don't want to speak of ourselves as wretched. But Paul is not unhappy to speak of himself as that. He he says, wretched man I am. Elsewhere he calls himself the chief of sinners. He remembers these things. He's humbled by these things. When I look back on my life and I think about the things that I have said, the things that I have done, or the things that I have not done that I should have done, I recognize that along with him, I'm a wretched man. And this is therefore 
No foundation for pride. Pride is essentially a lie. There's no basis for it. The grace given to me says, I should not think of myself more highly than I ought. I read a story recently about a a brain surgeon who was out for a walk one day and as he was walking there was a terrific crash and somebody had crashed into a tree uh, and uh, had uh, incurred quite serious injury and he said call ambulance quick and he began to administer first aid and a crowd uh, appeared all around and a little boy moved through the crowd to the front and said I think I better take over from here, sir. I'm a, I'm a Boy Scout and I've done first aid. We should not have jumped up ideas about ourselves. We, we are essentially a humble people and any gifts that we have are gifts. If you are gifted and you have an ability, it's no basis for pride. In the next uh, a few verses, Paul says, we're in a body. We've got different members. Members have got different functions. The fact you've got one gift, another person has another gift, is no basis for you looking down on that person or for them looking up to you. The gospel humbles us. The gospel puts us all on a level playing field where we're all brothers and sisters. There's no room for titles and status. There's no room for hierarchies. There's no room for putting people on pedestals. Yes, we have some great people amongst us. But they are brothers and sisters saved by grace the same way that you are and I am. I sometimes get worried when people insist on titles. Because titles essentially alienate from one another. Okay, we know the gifting, but we don't have to call one another by the title of the function that we play within the church. Nobody ever wants to be called cleaner. Apostle, prophet, somehow have a a kind of resonance about them that appeals to our pride, but they really don't play any part in the kind of relational church that we want to build, where we are one body, many members, and the members don't all have the same function. Some may have the gift of prophecy, or service, or teaching, or exhortation, or contribution in generosity, or leadership, or zeal, or doing acts of mercy. These are wonderful gifts, but they all are simply gifts. They are not status symbols. When we build our identity and our security on the foundation of what we do, rather than what God's done and what he's given to us, then we become, we're thinking wrong again. And we have to humble ourselves and come back to God. In verse 9, Paul changes his, uh, his focus from thinking to feeling. And I'm not feeling that I should be going on too much longer at the moment, so I won't take too long on this. But God wants us to love him with all our hearts and with all our minds. In this chapter, it's the other way around. Minds and hearts. Your mind really matters. If you're a student, study well. Because God wants you to be academically educated in order to devote your mind to the work of service you will do, whether in secular or in spiritual, or that's not really the right sort of uh, division, but whether out in the world or in the church, let's put it like that. In verse 9 anyway, he says, let love be genuine. So he's now turning about the deeper things of the heart. 
Abhor what's evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Love should characterize us. The greatest is love. Love is what brought the Lord Jesus to offer the great sacrifice. Love is what God is. God is love. Father, Son and Holy Spirit in total harmony with one another. Never said a bad word against one another. Never had an argument with one another. Always affirming and building one another up. Always taking joy and delight in one another. And Paul is saying, that's the kind of church, that's the kind of people that we ought to be. We're not just talking about working as individual Christians, but as a community who learn together, think together, love together, pray together, work together, serve together. And therefore, he says in verse 14, sorry, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Because we are not called to be super saints out there on our own. We are called to be a community, a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. To live in harmony with one another, not being haughty, verse 16, but associating with the lowly, not simply trying to curry favour with those who are apparently at the top of the tree and responding when we discover people are not what we hoped they would be with grace and with favour. If possible, Paul says in verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. What a great ambition. Paul is concerned that the church operates out of this foundation then that we consecrate ourselves. We write the blank sheet of paper, write our names on the blank sheet of paper and offer ourselves to God. That we learn to think clearly about ourselves, about ourselves in relation to God, about ourselves in relation to others. And that we are characterized by not just renewed minds, but by renewed hearts where we love one another and love one another deeply and in truth. Returning uh, in verse 20, 21, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcut, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You don't operate like that just as a result of renewing your mind. It tells you what to do, but it doesn't give you the power. You don't operate like that simply out of a renewed heart in the sense of your emotions. It takes will. It takes determination. And God would have our hearts, our minds, and our wills. Someone once said, returning evil for good is devil-like. Returning evil for evil is beast-like. Returning good for good is man-like. Returning good for evil is God-like. And God so loved us that he gave his son when we were his enemies at the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were helpless, when we were hopeless. God sent his son into the world and he went to the cross and died and laid down his life. Now he's calling us. Follow in my footsteps. Come after me. Be like me. Be like me in the way you think, in the way you feel, in the way you choose. Do it within your own heart. Do it within your own family. Do it within your community. 
and then take it out into the world. It's this kind of renewal that God wants us to experience. In chapter 13, he says, it spills over into the way that you adopt your attitude towards the world as citizens, paying your taxes, being honourable and obedient. In chapter 14 and 15, he works it out in community. But it all starts with this word, therefore. It all spills out of the gospel. Father, we thank you that you have not just diagnosed our problems, but you have provided a solution, a powerful solution where the gospel will grip us and it will transform us. And thank you now, Lord, that you've given us a way of renewing our minds. And we come today, Lord, and consecrate again our minds to you. All that we think. Help us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. The negative things. The puffed up ideas that we may have about ourselves. The false appraisal. Lord, any way in which we think that we become something on the basis of gifts that we have received. We pray, Lord, that we will have renewed hearts, our feelings, our affection towards one another in the church will deepen and grow. Our love for God, our love for one another in, in fellowship and our love for the lost. And we pray, Lord, that our will will be totally given over to you and that you should have the very best. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to leave you with just one more thought before Neil comes and wraps up. There's a story. Better finish with a story. Queen Mary used to love visiting Scotland and uh, she used to, this is in the days before modern security was necessary, she used to just walk about and uh, enjoy mingling with the people. One day she went on a walk a little bit further than she normally went. The weather turned and... Uh, it began to rain and she knocked on somebody's door and they didn't recognise her and she said, excuse me, she said, would you have an umbrella that I could have? Well, the lady had a couple of umbrellas and she had a new one she'd just bought and she had a tatty one that she was going to throw away but she hadn't quite got around to throwing away. And so she said, here, you can have this one. And the, uh, the, the queen said, okay, I'll get it sent back to you tomorrow. The next day, there was a knock at the door and a man said, good morning, madam. The queen has asked me to return this to you. And when she realized what she had done, she burst into tears. She'd given this tatty old umbrella to the queen. Let's make sure as we give our hearts, our minds and our wills that we don't give the tatty remnants, the second best, to our king. But we give him everything. God bless you today. Thank you, Neil.